This is our series, Desecrated, The Faces of Sin. In this series, we will examine the perverse and pervasive nature of sin as we explore specific Old Testament narratives. We will see the many faces of sin and not just view sin in a one-dimensional way, but see its multifaceted nature. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 16, 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Then the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will, too, they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are Elroy. For she said in this place, I have actually seen the one who sees me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, sis. Peace be with you. If you're a first-time guest, we want to say welcome. My name is Jamal. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the joy of uh, bringing the word uh, today. We are so glad that you would uh, take time out this Sunday to uh, come. And no matter the reason that you are here, we pray that a song, song or word spoken will enrich your life in Christ Jesus. And to the rest of the Sojourn family, uh, what's up? What's cracking? What's popping? Good to see you. I pray that the Lord will meet you here this morning as well. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive right into today's text. Lord, you are are holy. Let's think about the angels who, um, in all their majesty and beauty, surround your throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are set apart. You sit high. You look low. You're helpless children. You see and you know. You are present. And it is you who gives life and you and you alone. So I pray, Father God, that you would just give life to us through your word. You allow this sacred moment, Father God, to continue to transform us. Allow another brick to be put in our spiritual houses so that we can grow to be strong in Christ Jesus. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're continuing our series, which we just started last week, which is called Desecrated. And uh, we're looking at the truth about sin or uh, just the nature of sin, the many faces of sin, how sin shows up in the Bible. And we want to look at it from a, a different angle or than maybe we're tr- traditionally used to looking at it as we slow down for this Lent season, praying for renewal and revival um, so that we can see the destructiveness of sin, but so that we also can see the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, what he has delivered us from and how he is forming us. And so today we're going to discuss, as we continue to look at these Old Testament narratives up until Easter, um, that gives us a picture into the nature of sin, the subject sin as a parasite. Sin as a parasite. Now, the word parasite does not uh, show up in this chapter um, that we just read, but the idea of sin being parasitic in nature does. A parasite is an organism living in, on, or with another organism to obtain nutrients, to grow, or to multiply. It's often in a state that directly or indirectly harms its host, right? So it's an organism that latches on to another organism, and it, it is damaging its host while it is growing and multiplying. And that's like sin. Here's a couple examples. Uh, First, let's think about how God created human beings to have an imagination and to be curious, right? Uh, Sin can take how God designed humans with this imagination and with this curiosity. Some of us have more than others. And it can leach off of it to where we are curious about the wrong things and where we use our imaginations selfishly or in the wrong way. We find ourselves not latching on to that which is true, which is good, and which is beautiful, but rather that which is wrong, juicy, or drama-filled. Another example of uh, the parasitic nature of sin is our gifts. God has given each and every one of us gifts, both natural gifts and as well as spiritual gifts. And you may have heard it said that um, there's two, you know, your greatest gift is also your greatest curse. So the parasitic nature of sin can latch on to a gift, something that is good, that is given by God, and it can corrupt it, and it can make it bad. Think about people who have the gift of charisma or the gift of talking. Uh, They're great conversationalists. You enjoy talking to them. But the sinful side of that is that they can use that gift of charisma maybe to manipulate or talking to bully people and run over them where others aren't heard. Or the opposite. Some of us are gifted to not be talkative, to be quiet. And we can have this, this gift can work out in the fact that we show up as a sage with wisdom. We can listen well. People feel seen and heard when they're around us. But the parasitic nature of that gift can be that we can selfishly withdraw. We can, uh, people cannot get to know us because we're never vulnerable. Or we can go so inward that the body of Christ cannot benefit from that gift of listening or caring. In his book, Confessions, Augustine wrote that evil has no existence except as a privation of good. 
Later on, we see that C.S. Lewis is going to build off of this Augustinian thought when he would say that goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. In essence, I want to explore what sin and evil, uh, how, I'm sorry, how sin and evil takes something that is good and it corrupts it. Just like a shadow doesn't exist outside of the light shining on an object, evil doesn't exist without some good thing. And the further the light is away from the object, the larger the shadow or the larger the sin. The further we are from Jesus, that good gift that evil is latching on to, James chapter 1, those desires which become uh, parasitic, they become evil, and then they give birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. The farther away we are away from Jesus, the larger that shadow grows. And so I just want to give us two quick movements through today's sermon. The first is we want to look at the parasitic nature of sin, the parasitic nature of sin. And the second movement, we will just look at the uh, the person, personability of God, the parasitic nature of sin and the personability of God. In Genesis 16, we see the story of three significant people, Abraham, Sarai, and Hagar. And the story of these three characters describe how sin takes a good desire and it feeds off of it, especially with Abraham and Sarai. Each of the three people in the story um, and will be affected by the parasitic nature of sin. And if you look at the background of Genesis chapter 16, you'll remember in Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abram. Uh, this is right after the Tower of Babel. God selects Abram and he consecrates him to himself. He promises to make Abram's offspring great. In essence, God promises that the world will be blessed or literally saved from its current state through the offspring of Abram. And if you're reading Genesis carefully, you're like, this is good news. It's filled with so much bad news after the fall. This is good news. God is saving for himself a people, a nation through which the world will be blessed. Then you get to Genesis chapter 15, years after this promise of Genesis chapter 12, and Abram is still without child. He and Sarai are growing older and older, and there's a tension that is starting to loom. And then in verse 6, one of the key verses of all the scripture, we see Paul building his, this, his theology around this, the theology of, of justification by faith. And we read these words, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That is that God, because of Abram's faith, credited him as righteous. Abram had faith in the Lord's promise, and his faith justified him. His faith in God made him right with God. Sarah, Abraham's beloved wife, has not been able to have children, as I said, even as we get to Genesis chapter 16. So she is barren, and barrenness in any time and any culture is very difficult to deal with. But barrenness as a, as a, as a wife of, of Abraham was even more difficult. Think about this. She was promised that she would have a child and that this child would save the world, that it will bring blessings to the entire world. 
And especially during this time within this culture, we see that it's even more difficult because for a woman, her identity was in building a family. That was her identity. That was her role. In fact, we read and we learn in some uh, in cultures surrounding uh, this time that if a woman hadn't given birth after 10 years, she was often divorced. And so Sarah is feeling the weight of being barren. Her safety depends on it. Her identity depends on it. Her, her role is connected to it. She's feeling worthless. She's probably feeling like she can't do anything right. And on top of that, she's confused. Abram has told her that the Lord has visited him multiple times and promised that a child would be born through which the nations will be blessed. Could you imagine a psychological toll on her? Could you imagine her wondering if Abram is just leading her on, giving her false hope? Could you imagine as decade after decade goes by, she goes from her 30s to her 40s to her 50s to her 60s to her 70s. Women all around her is given birth and she's still without child. And I'm sure that you can empathize with this as all of us have a good thing, something that we think is good and that the Lord wants to give us that we don't have. In verse 2, it says that Sarah, Sarah said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her, and I can build a family. And Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So Abraham's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. And this happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years, for 10 years. And so we see in this text that Abram is feeling the pressure from his wife, Finally, perhaps tired and worn down with the whole ordeal, he agrees to take his wife's Egyptian slave as his wife and to be intimate with her. And the text says that her name is Hagar. Likely, Hagar became a part of Abram's family in Genesis chapter 12 when they left Egypt and Pharaoh blessed them with flocks, herds, male and female donkeys, male and woman bondservants, and camels. Hagar would have been considered a a maidservant or a bondservant, and some text says slaves, which wouldn't be a one-on-one coronation to uh, chattel slavery. Um, but we also see that she then moves from this kind of category of maidservant to a concubine. And a concubine is a person who did not have full status of wives, but who were girls who came to the marriage um, with the role of childbearing, all right? And so as we read this text and as we see these things happening, even this uh, form of polygamy happening, uh, we want to understand that this is a description, it's not a prescription. If the Bible is not telling us um, that this should happen, God is not saying that this is the behavior that he wants from the people, but rather this was a cultural norm and things that were accepted and it is just describing what happened. In fact, when we look at the Bible, when it comes to polygamy and when it comes to narrowing in on God's people and his stories, um, it only brings heartache. It never results in joy. Picking up in verse four, speaking of Abram, it says, and he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. And Sarah, I said to Abram, you are responsible for my sufferings. I 
put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. So Abram replies to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. And so we see what's happening here. Hagar is pregnant. And after uh, she um, is, is, is pregnant, she becomes contemptible uh, to Sarai, which means that she, uh, the word contemptible literally means that she looks at her as if she's small, um, looks at Sarai as if she's small. Then Abram tells her to, uh, to treat her however she wants to treat her, essentially saying that she's your employee. And Sarai mistreats her so bad that Hagar runs away into the wilderness to be away from her. And I just want us to pause for a second and just to reflect on the weight of what we're reading. This man named Abram, who's considered the father of the faith, is hurting. He is in a very difficult situation. God has promised him a son with Sarai. It still hasn't happened. His wife is getting older. She is in a very vulnerable spot. Do I trust my husband's word, the promises of God, or do I not? And what she wants is good. It's a good desire to, to bear children, to build a family. But this desire becomes corrupt as sin, the parasitic nature of sin, latches onto it. It begins to grow. It begins to take this desire, this good thing, and make it the most ultimate thing. And as this sin grows and as she kind of gets out of the light, the shadow, the sin grows more and more and more. Her and Abram take things into their own hand. And we talked about sin last week, how sin is vandalism against shalom. It vandalizes Shalom. James 3 talks about how it's demonic and it causes all types of confusion, all types of pain. And essentially, that's what we see here happening here is just downright chaos and downright pain. And so what I want to look at real quick in each of these persons, I just want to show us how sin just grows on the inside of them and how it makes a mess. And I also just want to show really quickly uh, how uh, this good desire is then exasperated by something outside of the person, which adds more pressure, which leads that person to kind of pop or to compromise. And the reason we want to look at this is because I think that in the church, a lot of times we, uh, we just don't think and slow down and think deeply enough about what we do and why we do it what we want and why we want it, how sin grows into our heart and becomes something so much larger. Next week is going to really build off this, and we're going to talk about idolatry and a lot of these same things that, in the way that idols are constructed in our hearts. And so, for example, if we look at starting off with Sarai, and we look at her desire for this child, as we just talked about, and how that's natural, we also see how it's intensified by the narrow identity 
that the culture um, described and kind of created for women, for a person to find their worth and their identity in a very specific um, uh, culturally shaped way, um, sets that person up if they cannot meet it or don't meet it to just be total failures. And we see that the culture in which Sarah was uh, a part of contributed um, to her own desires turning evil and then becoming exasperated. And slowly it just drained the host. It drained her. And so you say, well, women, some of you may say, (laughs) that's the role of women, right? Women's role is to build a family and to bear children. And I would say that that's not necessarily every woman's calling. And that's not what the scripture says. It may prescribe that, but it doesn't necessarily describe that, right? Some women are not called to be married. Some women are not called to be children. Some women are not called to simply just work inside the home. Some women are called to be single. Some women are called to work outside of the home. Some women are called to flourish in the workplace, right? And so when we narrowly define something and when we allow our culture to build us up and say, this is your identity, this is what you have to do in order to find worth, in order to be righteous, it it latches on to maybe a good desire and it begins to grow and it begins to, to drain one. As we read Genesis chapter 16 and we see the impact on Sarah, we we are reminded by echoes of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, so we read about Eve, it says, So she, Eve, took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. In the same way, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 3, we see this sentence is, is, is made in a similar way. So Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband. Abram as a wife for her. When we read Hebrews chapter 4, we hear about Hagar and this child that she has. And Paul uses allegory of of Hagar, uh, of the birth of Ishmael being a a birth from the flesh or done in the flesh. Because she has this good desire and this good desire becomes her identity. She acts not out of faith, but out of fear. She allows this one thing to be what she lives and what she dies for. And as Christians, we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we take anything out of that and we take Christ out and we put anything else in that, it will eventually drain us. We will get further and further away from the light and our shadow or our sin will become larger. It's the parasitic nature of sin. And we see the same thing happening with Abram. Whereas Sarai's whole thing was cultural influence, uh, I'm sorry, was uh, it was uh, was one a child, and it was exasperated by um, this promise that Abram received and her holding on to this identity of having a child more than the faithfulness of God, and it was exasperated by cultural influence. We see the same thing in a similar way happening with Abram. Um, Abram wants a good thing, and what's the good thing? It's to please his wife. He wants his wife happy, and that's a good thing. Perhaps he heard of all the cultural monikers. A happy wife makes a happy life. Perhaps he heard that the key to a successful marriage is learning to say, 
Yes, dear. Come on now. Y'all know y'all reading y'all culture's Bibles. Don't have me up here looking like I'm the sinner. Amen. <laughs> yes, dear. I'll have so many men tell me, you know, the key to a happy marriage is just saying yes, dear, right? Sometimes that's true, all right? <laughs> Not always. I'm joking, Parsa. Don't, don't email me about that. <laughs> all right. My assistant told me to stay with the script so I can get through everything. Let me stay with what I got, all right, man? But we see in the Bible that successful marriage for a man or a woman does not come down to just saying yes to the other person. The key to being a successful person, which if you, uh, 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 I'm sorry, a faithful person, which if you have two people loving Jesus and building their identity around him in the same way, is walking by faith together, worshiping him together. Uh, not capitulating to one's spouse's deepest desires. And that's what we see happening with Abram. In Genesis chapter 15, Abram is listening to God. He's listening to the voice of God. He's delighting in the voice of God. He believes God and he is counted righteous. Then his pressure comes on, which is totally understandable. His wife is in a very vulnerable spot, a very hard place, incredibly difficult spot. And years and years under that pressure, it's likely that he just gives up and says, I'm going to compromise to make you happy. And that's kind of what happens with our hearts. We have a good desire that good desire slowly becomes more important than it should be. It becomes our identity. And it's often capitulated either by cultural influence or sometimes by this Christianized influence. It's not even what the Bible says. It's just what our Christian culture has created. And we feel all this outside pressure. And before we know it, our identity is found in this. And then think about Hagar and the parasitic nature of Hagar. We've got to feel for Hagar. She's an Egyptian woman who is a servant. She's a third-class citizen. She's just given um, to uh, Abram as uh, a gift to be a slave from uh, Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, she has purpose. And, And that purpose is to have a child. And very quickly, she finds her identity in having that child. Just like that. Her identity becomes, I'm now someone, and she begins to look down on Sarah. I think it's interesting that in this text, she doesn't emphasize the fact or celebrate the fact that she is with child. That's not the the point. It's not that she's with child. The point is that she's better than someone else who is not with child. That's how our identity works. That's how sin works. That's how it grows. It's not just about getting something. It's comparison. It's about being better than somebody else. And our sinful nature is constantly looking to find an identity. Constantly looking to prove that we are right, that we are good, that we are worth something, that we are desirable. The more and more I live, the more convinced I I am that that's what we're looking for, to be desirable, to be wanted, to be loved. And any identity outside of God, that's what we're about to see in this text, any identity outside of Jesus will lead us either in self-deprecation or self-conceit. It's going to lead us to 
feeling bad about ourselves because we don't have it or we don't have as much as someone else or self-conceit. We're going to be self-deceived and think that because we do have something that someone else doesn't have, that we're better than them. And I just quickly want to show you God's answer to the parasitic nature of sin and how it latches to good desires and corrupts us very quickly. Look at verse 8. And he said, Hagar, I'll go back to verse 7. It says, then Sarah mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. And I think this is interesting. And I don't, even, I don't want to skip this part either. That after Sarah confronts Abram, she says, listen, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, um, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. It's interesting that they start arguing and that her pain point is that her husband didn't protect her essentially. She's like, this is your fault. You were responsible to this. I was vulnerable. And then you went and you went along with it. And that's just the confusion that sin that does. It causes us to blame others. And it just causes all of this strife, right? And so we see that she kicks her out the house. And then in verse uh, eight, he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress. And so the Bible says that this character, the angel of the Lord, finds her in the spring of a wilderness. Most likely she's on her way back to Egypt. And this angel of the Lord is a, a figure that's complicated. Because sometimes in the Bible, and he normally shows up to uh, patriarchs or to prophets, uh, to judges at key moments, and sometimes he's described as a divine figure. And other times he's treated as if he's just an angel or just a, a messenger. And there's debate about whether he's an angel or whether he's a messenger. I would argue that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, it's Jesus coming down as a divine messenger. And that the Bible is preparing us for Trinitarian language, for this understanding of, of God also coming in human form. And so we see here that the angel of Yahweh comes to her and he begins to minister to her. And he calls her Hagar, slave of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? Isn't this interesting that this is the same pattern that we see throughout Genesis when uh, people are in sin? We saw it in Genesis 3. We saw it in Genesis 4. God pursues us in our sin. God pursues us in our mess. And he always comes with a question. I love that. And he knows the answers to the question. The reason he comes with a question is he's given us an opportunity to be vulnerable, to be weak. He's given us permission to be real. It's like, I know the answer, but I want you to know that we have a relationship, that I'm personable, that though I'm the God of this universe and, uh, and, and eminent, I'm, I'm, close, I'm close to you. I want to know you. And the text says that the angel of the Lord uh, says something very difficult to her. Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. And so he's sending her back to the place that she's being mistreated. And this is not condoning that a person who is in an abusive relationship or marriage should go back to it and just have faith. Abuse is, is not acceptable. 
And as Christians, um, we believe that that's a, a huge issue. Every single person is created in the image of God. And as a pastor and as leaders, we believe that it is our job to, uh, to help protect people who are in those situations. This is a description, not a prescription. This is God um, giving her confidence that he's going to be with her in it and that something great is going to happen out of this. She would have been out on her own, vulnerable in this culture, not able to provide for herself. So he says, go back under your covering. And as you're under that covering, know that I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. This is a promise for prosperity. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. Another beautiful moment of how God is ministering to her. All throughout the Bible, when a child is born, um, the father is who God shows up to and speaks and names the child. But here we see the angel of the Lord coming to Hagar, naming it Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. He hasn't just heard your your prayers in general. He's heard your cry of affliction. He's seen your pain. He knows where you are. He knows that you are hurting. He sees that you are mistreated. He knows your place in society. Finds her in the wilderness where everyone else is saying, you're just a slave. Your life doesn't matter. You exist to serve other people. God is saying, I'm here to serve you. The God of this universe shows up to an Egyptian slave woman. And then he tells about Ishmael. Now, this is interesting, him talking about Ishmael. Because for a long time, I have read this, and I think that there is some validity to this. This is a more philosophical conversation, that this is just this predetermined, uh, elected way for Ishmael in where this is just who he is. He's cursed. He's doomed before he lives. He's just going to be, as it says, a wild donkey. His hand will be against anyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives like, man, he didn't have a chance. But I don't think that's what's happening in this text. I think that what's happening when we slow down and read the Bible with common sense, experience, observations, um, you don't have to be a a family uh, system theorist to understand what's happening here. Ishmael is going to live his life being rejected by his parents. When you go to Genesis chapter 21, you're going to see that um, when Abram and Sarah get married, uh, get, as soon as they uh, conceive and have Isaac, it's all about Isaac. It's all about Isaac. Sarah catches Ishmael laughing as, as a, a child, essentially, that, at Isaac, and she curses him goes to Abram, and they kick him out the house. And from then on, he is alienated from his parents. In that culture, they were his parents. Hagar did not have rights to him as a son. So wouldn't a person who's alienated by his parents, seen as just a slave woman's child, and kind of thrown away once Isaac come, grow up to be wild and feel rejected? Verse 13, look at Hagar's response. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? And this is amazing, a human being naming God. This may be the only place in scripture that I can remember offhand that this happens. Name places after God, but she names God. You are the God who sees me. 
So what is the answer to sin's parasitic nature? It is a personable God who invites us to find our identity in how he defines us and who he is and who we are to him, not culture, not a person who we should respect and admire, not the works of the law, but in God himself. And I just thought about to quickly tell you here today that building your life on any other identity than Jesus Christ will lead you to a place of sunkenness. It will lead you to a place of misery. If your heart will be filled with self-pity and self-deprecation, or your heart will be filled with self-conceit. And both of those are dead ends and cannot satisfy you. And God's invitation for us as Christians is to live a life of faith that admires and worships the one true God who is both distant, above all, and near (laughs) with us. A God who loves us. Perhaps God's invitation for you today is to ask yourself, what good thing in your life are you turning into the ultimate thing? What good thing are you finding your identity in? What thing are you saying that if this doesn't work, I'm a failure? If I don't have this, my life is worthless. If this is to be taken away from me, I might as well die. My life is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What are you depending on? Is it your intelligence? Is it on building a family? Is it on building a successful business? Is it on raising perfect children? What are you building your life on? Is it on having more children? What do you think that if I get this, it will make me right? It will make me be worth something. And I'm telling you, God has freed you from the bondage of the law and the bondage of your own law that you're making up and the bondage of cultural laws. And he's calling you into a life of flourishing. And I'm here to tell you today that no matter where you are, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how self-deprecating you are, that God is coming after you today in the wilderness. And he wants you to know that he is the God who sees you. He is Emmanuel. He is with you. He loves you. In Christ, you are righteous. In Christ, you are enough. In Christ, you are as successful as a person can be. And he is freeing you to be who you are in him. To find joy and pleasure through him. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com.
Midtown.com slash Midtown.